In the 18th and 19th centuries, a series of investigatory missions and archaeological excavations uncovered the ruins of Priene. These ruins, located in what is now Turkey, are generally accepted as the most complete surviving example of an entire ancient Greek city. Though it was originally constructed by the Greek Empire in the 4th century BCE, Priene would be firmly under the control of Rome less than 200 years later. In fact, a Roman calendar inscription dating back to 9 BCE found among the ruins of Priene should be of particular interest when we engage the first chapter of Mark. A translated portion of that ancient Roman calendar inscription reads as follows. Since providence has ordered the whole of our life and ordained the most perfect consummation of human life by giving us Caesar Augustus, filled with virtue that he might benefit humankind, sending him as a savior for us and our descendants that he might end war and arrange all things, and since he, by his appearance, excelled even our anticipations, surpassing all previous benefactors and leaving no hope of surpassing what he has done. And since the birthday of the God, Augustus, was the beginning of the good news for the world that came by reason of him. While the journey from Latin to modern English is a bit bumpy, this calendar inscription is basically listing the reasons why Rome is establishing a new calendar based on the year of Caesar's birth. Essentially, they're changing their calendar because they believe Caesar Augustus to be the perfect savior, God on earth, who will end all war and make everything right, and because his birth is the good news for which the world has been waiting. Does any of this Sound familiar? If you're like me, you might find this a little disconcerting. Caesar is the Savior. He's God on earth, and we should commemorate his birth. And for that matter, the story of Caesar is the good news. What's that about? Almost 80 years after this inscription described Caesar as a Savior God, and heralded his birth as the good news, followers of a Jewish rabbi crucified by Rome, people who had lived their entire lives under the boot of that empire, would use this same language to tell a different story. Listen to this portion of the story of God as it is written in the library that we love from the first chapter of Mark's Gospel. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him, and were baptized by him in the river Jordan. Now John was clothed with camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, The one who is more powerful than I is coming after me, 
I am not worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved child in whom I delight. The story of God told for the people of God, thanks be to God. The calendar inscription in Priene states, the birthday of the God Augustus was the beginning of the good news or gospel for the world. Mark's testimony of Jesus of Nazareth, widely accepted to be the first of the four biblical accounts written, begins with eerily similar phrasing. The beginning of the good news or gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now the Greek word behind all of this is euangelion, the root of the modern English word evangelical. Euangelion means good news, joyful tidings, or as the Anglo-Saxons would later translate it, gospel. The citizens and slaves of Rome were used to hearing euangelion. It was a word associated with the cult of the emperor. They were familiar with stories of Caesar being God on earth and celebrating his birth and rise to power as festival days. Biblical scholar William Lane tells us the reports of those festivals were called euangelion, and they shared the good news, the joyful tidings, the gospel of Caesar's rule on earth. In what would have been obvious to his original audience, Mark mimics this almost word for word as he purposefully co-ops the language of the Roman Empire to begin his story of Jesus. In fact, one could safely say that Mark didn't just co-opt the language of the Roman Empire, he changed it completely. He interpreted it in a way it had never been used before. Biblical scholar Walter Brueggemann teaches that when it comes to the stories of our faith, interpretation is inescapable. It's what we do. It's what we've always done. Furthermore, Brueggemann asserts there is no innocent interpretation. All interpretation is subject to our vested interest, our experience, and our wounding. Let me say that again. Our vested interest, our experience, and our wounding. If Brueggemann is correct, and it stands to reason that Mark and his fellow Jesus followers had different interests, experiences, and wounding than that of the Roman Empire. Accordingly, their gospel accounts, what they perceived to be good news, would be different. First and foremost, the gospel of Caesar was the good news of empire. Any joyful tidings or good news coming out of Rome were going to be decrees that propped up the empire, edicts that glorified Rome, stories and imagery that thumped the chest of the greatest civilization man had ever built. They were the rulers of the world, and Caesar was God on earth, after all. 
Contrastingly, Mark's gospel, the good news of the Christ, doesn't open with a decree or an edict. It opens with a voice crying out in the wilderness, inviting others to come. And friends, the invitation to the wilderness in Mark's gospel is not subtle. In the opening 13-verse passage of Mark, he alludes to the metaphor of the wilderness eight times. Mark is clearly holding the wilderness up as an alternative to the great civilization of the Roman Empire. The wilderness was nothing like the empire. It was the place outside the reach of the predatory systems of Caesar. Or, if we prefer, Pharaoh. After all, this was not a new idea. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, inviting all that would hear away from empire, away from the narrow place, and into the open and wild space is one of the layered themes at the heart of the biblical narrative. Beginning with the Israelites leaving the empire of Egypt to wander in the wilderness of the Exodus, this metaphor is repeated over and over throughout the scriptures. Unlike the empire, the wilderness seemed to have no viable life support system. In the experience of the biblical writers, the wilderness was the desert, a place without water or food or any real shelter. There was no reason for anyone to think they could survive there. Yet, in stories of the Bible, when people answer the call to wilderness, they're not only sustained, they're transformed. The empire was the domain of Pharaoh, of kings, of Caesar. The wilderness is the realm of the creator, the source of all things. The gospel of Caesar was also a gospel of certainty. There was no room for nuance. No space for reflection or interpretation. There was one way to think, one way to behave, and one way to believe Caesar's way. Any thought or behavior or belief that did not toe the imperial line was a threat to the empire. Caesar was God on earth. Whatever he decreed was right and righteous. End of story. Further reflection, interpretation, and understanding was not needed nor encouraged. The gospel of the Christ, in contrast, opens with an invitation to change your mind. To be open to new ways of thinking, behaving, and feeling. In Mark's gospel, John the Baptist appears in the wilderness and calls people to come out from empire and into a baptism of repentance. Now, in the language of our day, the word repentance carries a lot of baggage. It, it tends to make people feel guilty, like they've messed up or they're somehow unworthy. But friends, can we all agree that's not good news? I would invite you to consider the possibility that shame and condemnation are not what is going on here. The word that we translate as repent or repentance in the Christian scriptures is the Greek word metanoia. And it means a changed mind or a higher mind. 
noia or nous in Greek means mind. And meta can mean change, as in metamorphosis, or higher, as in meta narrative, or transcend, as in metaphysical. In the same way that we use the Greek word paranoia to describe someone who is outside or apart from their mind, metanoia describes a changed, higher, or transcendent mind. I would submit to you that the gospel voice crying out in the wilderness is not a summons to a groveling, self-flagellating confession of shame. Rather, it is an invitation to an opened mind, an appeal to let go of certainty and be subject to change, a challenge to think higher thoughts, a calling to transcend. Lastly, the gospel of Caesar was a gospel of dominance. If there was one thing of which the empire wanted people to be certain, it was that the empire had the power and they were not afraid to use it. It's true, as the calendar inscription in Priene indicates, Caesar was held up as a god among people, a savior who would end all war and arrange everything as it should be, but make no mistake about it, the way that Caesar would end all war and arrange everything was through domination. Brutal and terrifying force. Rome had a practice of marching their armies into newly occupied territories and ordering residents to declare Caesar is Lord. Those who made the declaration were allowed to live and become subjects of Rome. Those who would not make the declaration were subjected to one of the empire's many gruesome and torturous methods of execution. Killing the seditious was an art form in which Rome reveled. Interestingly, before the time when the Gospel of Mark would have been written, Caesar Nero sent his general Vespasian, who would later become Caesar himself, to the region of the Galilee, in what historians have called Vespasian's most cruel and barbarous act, he completely wiped out the city of Magdala, a fishing community on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, chasing down and killing over 6,000 people who fled by boat, returning to shore to slowly torture and kill another 1,200, and then sold the remaining and now terrifyingly compliant 30,000 survivors into slavery. That historical context makes the earliest mention of Mary Magdalene, Mary from Magdala, resonate even more deeply as she is the first named witness to the crucifixion and resurrection of the Christ in Mark's gospel. From beginning to end, Mark's gospel rejects the idea that Caesar is Lord. In Mark's gospel, Jesus the Christ is Lord, and his way is not dominance. His good news is not brutal and terrifying force. It's solidarity. The gospel decree of the empire demanded allegiance and, would, and certainty and would use whatever dominating force was necessary to get it. The gospel of the Christ was a calling to wilderness, an invitation to openness, 
and the declaration that the Messiah would be with you for all of it. Don't miss this. When John the Baptist cries out from the wilderness for a baptism of metanoia, Jesus the Christ shows up. Friends, that's no small detail. First, Mark tells us that people from the Judean countryside and Jerusalem answers John's, answered John's call to come to the Jordan. Now, at its closest, the Jordan River was about 20 miles away from Jerusalem, maybe a day's walk, maybe two. Jesus shows up in the wilderness of the Jordan River from Nazareth, which would have taken two weeks on foot. Why does he do that? Why would the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, God on earth, need a baptism of repentance? Why would Jesus need metanoia? Surely the mind of the source of all things is open. Why would it need to be changed? You know, when Matthew later, later retells this story in his gospel, John the Baptist even asks Jesus, how can I possibly baptize you? Why would this be necessary? Why are you here in the wilderness heeding this call to repentance? The gospel answer is solidarity. To be with you. Jesus the Christ doesn't answer the call to the wilderness and an invitation to metanoia because it's what he needs. He comes because it's what we need. We need to be there. And the Christ is with us. Mark's story is not being ambiguous. It's a tale of two Gospels. Dominance or solidarity. Certainty or metanoia. Empire or wilderness. You may remember the commercials from years ago for Reese's Peanut Butter Cups that would have, would have two people collide in some way. One person would be holding a bar of chocolate and the other person, for some reason, would be holding peanut butter. After the collision, one would say to the other, you got your peanut butter on my chocolate, while the other person would say, no, you got your chocolate on my peanut butter. And the argument would continue until they tasted the happy accident and realized the two were better together. While the entanglement of empire and our faith may be much like the Reese's commercial, meaning it's not always easy to establish whether we got our faith on our empire or if we got our empire on our faith, the resulting entanglement is not something better. It's not a happy accident. Sociologist and pastor Tony Campolo once offered what I consider to be a slightly more on-target quote about mixing ice cream and manure. He said, it doesn't do much to the manure, but it sure does ruin the ice cream. That helps me get closer to the real distance between these two Gospels. The truth is there's nothing sweet at all about the entanglement of empire and faith. The empire in me doesn't just ruin my faith, it can hijack it 
manipulate it, and use it to hurt, mislead, and oppress. And for me, this is where things get really scary. One might even say destabilizing. It's almost as if I can feel the ground beneath my feet start to quake and break up. Maybe you feel that too. These two stories, the gospel of Caesar and Jesus, are interwoven in me. It's hard for me to imagine how they could ever be untangled and detached. The truth is, I've been able to make the ways of Caesar work really well for me. I'm well-versed in the ways of dominance and way too unpracticed in solidarity. I am a master of certainty. I can be an expert of anything at any time at any place. I spend far too much time amongst the cut stones of crushing certainty and not nearly enough in the open and changing waters of metanoia. I give a lot of energy to empire building and tend not to make time for wandering in the wilderness. And once more, the wilderness is so close. I don't have to walk two weeks to get there. I don't even have to walk two days. It's right here, right now. I'm so skilled in the ways of Caesar, I can even combine the two Gospels and practice certainty and dominance in the name of Jesus. Interpreting the very story of God in such a way that it's small enough to fit inside empire. As Walter Brueggemann said, interpretation is inescapable. It's what we do. It's what we've always done. And there's no innocent interpretation. All interpretation is subject to our vested interests, our experience, and our wounding. I have a vested interest in maintaining empire. I'm experienced in certainty. I have been wounded by dominance. I can and do wound others. Caesar's gospel is so enmeshed in my interest, my experience, my wounding, and my interpretation that I actually believe the delusion that I can somehow navigate the empires out there without confessing the empire in me. I've given my energy my heart, my mind, even my faith to that delusion, to making sure I am on the right side of every imperial issue, to choosing only the best, most righteous empires with which to align and support, to convincing myself that somehow I'm the one, that I can figure out what no one else can figure out, that I can see what no one else can see, that I can manage it, I can handle it. I can make empire work. But that is delusion. That is the voice of Caesar 
of Pharaoh, of someone who thinks they are God on earth. That is not the voice crying out in the wilderness. The opening of Mark's gospel tells us the followers of Jesus began with an unmistakable and clear delineation between their faith and the empire of Caesar. Like their rabbi before them, they were harassed, oppressed, and brutalized. They were wounded. Unlike their rabbi, their wounding altered their interpretation. The delusion found its way in. It took centuries to be sure, but eventually their oppression and pain obscured the previously clear delineation, and Christianity not only aligned with the empire of Caesar, but used that imperial power to exact revenge and dominate those who had wounded them. We want to further the ways of the empire. All we have to do is return pain for pain. Offense for offense. And make sure that when we encounter a closed mind, we close ours too. But whose gospel is that? Revenge is not the way of Jesus. Turnabout as fair play is not good news. There are no joyful tidings in a proportionate response. Those are the ways of the empire, not the Christ. The way of the Christ is not about what's fair or what's deserved. It's about grace, unmerited favor. It's a journey of absorbing pain and wrongdoing taking it into ourselves and giving back love and mercy and compassion in return. It's a wilderness path of descent, of suffering and wandering, a path that will change us. It will open our minds. We will be baptized in the waters of metanoia, we will reconnect to the divine spirit breathed into our lungs and the lungs of our oppressors. It's not an easy path. But Mark declares that we don't go alone. The source and savior of all things, the living God, comes to meet us, to fill our lungs and remind us that we too are beloved children in whom God delights. All of us. We walk the wilderness path together. That, my brothers and sisters, is gospel.